Welcome to the BoxCast, where faculty and staff at the Box Center on Developmental Disabilities explore best practice, showcase success stories, and help listeners envision possibilities for innovation through interviews with state and national experts. Part of Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, the Boggs Center is New Jersey's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and a Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Program. I'm Jamie Zayed, Training and Consultation Specialist. In this episode, we're featuring a recap of some of our favorite moments from our first seven episodes. Throughout this episode, you'll hear our favorite clips. We hope that this inspires you to take a second listen to reinforce information and themes from our inaugural year of the podcast. Perhaps if you've missed an episode, this recap will spark some interest in checking out that missed episode. Disability allyship and storytelling to connect about disability with Emily Liddell, disability rights activist, writer, and digital communications consultant. A clip that stands out to me is Charlotte Borgensen, co-host and New Jersey Partners in Policymaking graduate, asking Emily about her long-term goals as an advocate. Emily's response was a rallying cry for all of us. She takes ownership of her own personal responsibility to continue advocating across her lifespan and to also know when to pass the torch and lift up other advocates so that they too can be lifelong advocates along with her. Additionally, she speaks of using her experiences to extend support to marginalized populations within the disability space. What are your long-term goals related to advocacy? For me, advocacy is really kind of cyclical. So if I have achieved a goal in one area, there's a good chance that my work is not done. And I don't mean that to sound overwhelming, but it's the reality. There are so many people in this world that it's simply impossible to reach all of them. And so my goal is to reach as many people as I can in ways that feel good and in ways that feel right. And so my long-term goal is really to be doing exactly what I'm doing now, but just to continue to grow and to continue to advocate on a broader scale. And also to focus on really knowing when it's not my turn to speak and when I need to pass the mic to other people and recognize that the best long-term goal that you can have for advocacy is giving the spotlight to other people whose voices may not necessarily be heard in the conversation. So my goal is not so much to amplify my own words forever, but rather to provide jumping off points for other activists, especially people who are multi-marginalized to have a platform, to have the spotlight on them, to really give them the support that they need to share their stories. And I'm lucky to say that I do a lot of that already, especially through my work as editor-in-chief of Rooted in Rights, because I support uh, disabled writers of all different types of identities to share their stories. 
And so that's an incredible privilege that I have to be able to do that. And longer term, I just hope to do more of that and to spread that even more broadly. Episode two, mental health needs among individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities with Andrea Whitwer, associate professor at the Ohio State University and director of training and LEND associate director at the Nissinger Center. Andrea's commentary on lessons learned from the pandemic, experiences of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and mental health needs truly highlights the utility and promise of telehealth as a strategy for continuing to reduce barriers to accessing services, even as things begin to open up. Do you think there's any major lessons that we've learned um, from this experience um, with the pandemic? Um, are there any things that stand out to you that um, you don't, you don't want to kind of get lost um, as we go back and <laughs> open up. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a few things that I think for me personally stand out. Um, one of them is telehealth. And I think that hopefully for years, people had recognized that there it was so much potential, but insurance companies weren't paying for it, which meant that people just couldn't feasibly do it. And I'm hoping, and I know there's a lot of work and advocacy being done to really help with that, because I think that has so many ways of breaking down barriers. We spend so much time talking about um, folks that are in, in Ohio, we have lots of rural areas where there is, there's not only not DD experts, there's no mental health experts at all. It's a desert of all. And so, um, these we there's like mental health provider shortage areas that we have in the state and so using telehealth is such a great way to reduce those barriers for adults and anyone that transportation aspect and so i think telehealth has some really great great um ways to do it but i think the other piece of that is i think we realize that sometimes telehealth and that technology leaves some people behind and so i think hopefully that's the other lesson that we learned i know we did some focus groups with adults with ID, and we were asking about just different aspects of mental health, but we were doing it in the midst of the lockdown, virtual focus groups, of course, and they were sharing their different experiences with therapists. Some of them had very favorable experiences. Some of them, because of the needs they needed related to adaptive technology or not have, being able to have access to high-speed internet, they didn't feel like they were able to access their treatment during that period. And so I think there's a, there's a lot we can do, but I also think hopefully we've learned we need to do some educating of providers to make sure they're doing it in a way that's inclusive of everyone. Episode three, Disability Inclusion and Public Health Programs, Training and Leadership with Adrian Griffin who served as the Senior Director of Public Health and Leadership at the Association of University Centers on Disabilities at the time. Adrian's explanation of public health as a blend of science and communication art, the need for plain language, and of course, the concept of same time access to everyone or state are so key to really ensuring that messaging is accessible timely and successful 
in reaching people with disabilities. And when we talk about serving the community, you know, we talk about serving um, everyone in, in that community. And certainly that includes uh, people with disabilities and, and intellectual and developmental disabilities included. Of course, uh, one important area of focus at the National Center on Disability and Public Health has been vaccine confidence uh, efforts. What have been uh, some really critical considerations about messaging? Uh, specifically around vaccines for people with disabilities? Yeah, it's been really very important to make sure that we're building out vaccine confidence and uh, sharing information in plain language, really getting at the heart of the messaging, uh, breaking it down, making it as simple as possible. Um, I really like to remind people that public health is a blend of science, but it's also a communication art. Um, and it's so important when you're working with the general community and then also including people with disabilities in your outreach, that the information is plain language, that it is simple so people know what to do, just one, two, three, uh, make it as simple as possible. Uh, so with our vaccine confidence messaging, that's what we've really tried to do. Um, we also have made sure that we are including self-advocates every step of the way. So that goes from design, material creation, reviewing it, critiquing it, in you know, taking that feedback and making it better and then showcasing it back to people with disabilities to make sure we're on track. So all of those pieces, plain language, and then really testing it with people who have different types of communication needs, making sure that it's on track. That's so important. You, you talk about the blending of art and science and um, including advocates and testing and plain language messaging. And what are, what are some other important public health issues that impact people with disabilities that those, those principles of the, of the vaccine confidence protocol can really be applied to to increase dialogue and discussion in, in the same way with the same success? Yeah, I would say that it's really critical to make sure that people with disabilities get the same access at the same time <laughs> as everyone else in the community, no matter how that individual might communicate. So we call that same time access to everyone or state, S-T-A-T-E, state, same time access to everyone for um, just an acronym to remember it. Um, so that as you're doing these um, campaigns, ask yourself, is this same time access to everyone? Um, and that is something that would be applicable across, you know, no matter what you're doing, a heart health clinic, a diabetes prevention program, you know, cancer screening, you name it. Is that campaign same time access to everyone? Are you using plain language materials? Are you including closed captions? Are you including ASL? Are you including those interpreters from the beginning? Not as an afterthought, not weeks and weeks later, but when you're launching the materials, are you having it available all at the same time to everybody in the community, no matter how that individual might communicate? So I would say those principles really transcend um, their lessons learned from the vaccine confidence work, but they really factor into any kind of outreach you're doing for public health. Episode four. Transition with Julie Lowndes-Taylor, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. 
and investigator at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. The discussion between co-host Tara Palmeric, parent advocate, partners in policymaking and New Jersey Lend alumni, and Julie Lowndes Taylor about the importance of timing when providing and receiving information and their thoughts on getting information to families when they can really use it to the maximum extent possible was beyond enlightening. I also love Tara's suggestions around parents partnering with other parents whose child is slightly older to serve as a resource for navigating complex experiences and systems. One of the things we hear repeatedly about the transition process is how overwhelming it really is. And oftentimes families are challenged by sort of the abundance of information um, and how to sort of cut through it and find the right information that they need at the right time. Um, and I, you know, I know Tara, does that resonate with your experience? Absolutely. Um, I know that from attending many, many lectures and no matter how useful the advice is, sometimes all those acronyms, all those SSSs and PPPs, <laughs> you know, go right over your head, um, you know, and it takes a few times and it turns into, uh, it only gets absorbed when it's most needed. So a lot of times um, somebody will go into a beautiful explanation of SSI and Medicaid and, the most that I can absorb at a certain age is that's something I'm going to look uh, at in more detail in two years, but at least I know it's something I need to look at. Um, and for some parents, um, you know, you're bombarded with all of that information with um, uh, confusion between what comes from the state, what comes from the federal government. And if you get it all at once, it's really hard to distill what, you know, what do I need to do today? I've heard many parents um, ask me questions about, about this. And my most useful advice that I've received and given to married parents is get to be the best friend of somebody whose child is about two years older than yours. <laughs> and I think that becomes your best resource. And you, you know, then you pay it forward to someone whose child is a little bit younger mm -hmm. um, to know the, the tips and tricks. I love that advice. Um, it, this issue of when information like this is the most helpful, I think is a, a really, really important question. And I don't think the answer to that is easy. Um, we're actually gonna test that to some extent in the research project, in the ASSIST research project right now. So in our pilot work, um, the, the grant that funded that pilot work that allowed us to first develop the program was very specifically aimed at youth on the autism spectrum who were exiting high school in the next two years. And they were very specific about the age range there to prepare them to leave high school. So that was who we recruited for that study. Um, and I think sort of conventional wisdom would be that getting people information early is better. The earlier you can get people information, they can plan and they can, and, 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 and I think there's some truth to that. But I also feel what you're saying here, Tara, and we've seen this in our work where, you know, you can give families a lot of information early, but it's hard to know what to attend to, especially when there's a lot. It's hard to know what services and supports 
your son or daughter is going to need after they leave high school or what's going to be the most beneficial. And also service systems change. And so you can give families information five years out and the Medicaid waiver may completely change between then and when that actually happened in our pilot work. We ran it. We ran the intervention twice. We had our sort of intervention group who took it right away. Then we had a group that got to take it after a year. And in between those two sessions, our Medicaid waiver completely changed. And so we had to redo that whole entire session. Um, and 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 so um, we also, you know, we had some families in our pilot work whose sons and daughters were in high school. They were leaving and going to college. And they kind of told us at the time, I don't think a lot of these services and supports are going to be relevant in our situation, but we're going to be sort of good citizens and research participants. And we're going to kind of help you out with this, with, you know, with your, with your program and your intervention, even though I don't know that we're going to really use this. And we had more than one case where once they left high school, the, the son, in one case, a son and in one case, a daughter, encountered some pretty significant challenges, both times in post-secondary education, a couple of circumstances where people actually dropped out of college pretty quickly, and, and the services and supports start to take on a different meaning than they had before their son or daughter had these experiences. So, so you know, there may be something to be said for having some experience in the adult world and seeing where the challenges are and, and what to attend to and what might be the most helpful. So we're actually for this, it's not answering all the questions that you talked about, Tara, because I do think sort of ultimately staggering some of this information may end up being the most effective, but we will be testing. We have some people who are still in high school. They can be as young as 16 up through 26. Um, and we're gonna at least run some statistical analyses to see if, if you know, getting this information at a certain age, before high school, after high school, right after high school, a little ways after high school, seems to be more beneficial to families. Um, but but it's, I think it's a tricky question. And I think it's really important because, you know, you want to get this information to families at a time when they can really maximally use it, right? Episode five. Technology for Community Living with Emily Shea Tannis, PhD, Associate Research Professor at the University of Kansas Lifespan Institute. Co-host Steve Grislavik, New Jersey Partners and Policymaking graduate, speaks with Dr. Tannis about the importance of keeping people with disabilities as part of the development process in making technology and really all things accessible and not including people with disabilities simply as a tokenized member of the team. Dr. Tannis's response gives some specific direction on how this can be done in a meaningful way across the entire development process. I'd like to say that, you know, uh, before, the, before the pandemic, right, accessibility was thought about, but it, it was kind of like towards the bottom of the list. Um, and, and now that we've had the pandemic, people are starting to uh, pay more attention to accessibility and accessibility features. Um, and we don't have it perfect yet, um, but they're, they're trying. Um, but there still needs to be a lot of improvement. Um, and and I, think it's a, I think it's important that we bring individuals with disabilities to the table um, without making them a token. Um, I think that that's also really, really important, um, you know, and, and we need to hear from a variety of different disabilities 
um, from the full spectrum. Um, so I think I think overall um, the pandemic has led to a you know a major push um, to make things more accessible. I love that you say you talk about the tokenism, Steve. I mean, the number one thing when we have um, developers or tech engineers coming to us to ask about cognitive disability, our response is talk to people with disabilities and not only talk to them, but hire them. So they're part of the development process from the very beginning, identifying where the issues are until the very end. So we're not engaged in what is this tech ableism or using technology to be the solution to disability. You know, we're starting to see this user design process. We're starting to see what is inclusive research design where folks with disabilities come at the beginning of the solution problem identification, go throughout the whole process, even to dissemination. And we just have to keep hammering that approach in until people are the, the folks with disabilities are the ones driving the research, are the ones driving the design, are the ones driving the engineering. But I, I the tokenism and just having someone present, we've done that. We've been present. It's time to be really engaged. Episode six, self-determination with Carrie Shogren, PhD, director of the Kansas University Center on Developmental Disabilities, senior scientist at the Scheifelbusch Lifespan Institute, and professor in the Department of Special Education at the University of Kansas. This episode of the podcast was so incredibly valuable to people with disabilities and their families. One clip that really stood out to me was Dr. Shogren's response to co-host Steve Grislavik's question about why self-determination matters. Dr. Shogren tells us that people who are self-determined, even those who don't have disabilities, are more likely to have the outcomes that make them happy and fulfilled in life versus those who are not self-determined. I see her statements on the topic to be a promise to all of us that positive outcomes are possible but they must be organically grown within the individual. Look, looking uh, towards the future, uh, why, why does self-determination matter for uh, future generations of individuals with disabilities? Yeah, I think it's really a very simple answer in some ways, but very complex in terms of how that plays out throughout all parts of society. But think about it for anyone, anyone that's listening, if you're involved in identifying the things that are important to you and choosing where you live and identifying kind of the future that you want, that's personally meaningful. We're going to be more motivated to do things, to take action. Um, and we all have the right to do that. Everyone has the fundamental right um, to be a part of decision making about their lives. And so we know from a lot of research that when people are more self-determined, when they're supported to grow in these abilities, to make decisions, to set and go after goals, to advocate, that it actually predicts better outcomes. Like, for example, when young people leave high school with higher levels of self-determination because they've gotten good teaching, good supports, they're more likely to have integrated employment, to participate in their community and other things. Those, we still need to build the supports in the community that allow that to happen, but self-determination is really critical for the person to have those skills and abilities to really take advantage of opportunities to make things happen in their life in partnership with their families, with other supporters that they want to happen. 
Episode 7, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion with Regina Rodriguez Cisneros, Director of Equity Initiatives and Systems Innovations for the National Association of State Directors of Developmental Disability Services. Co-hosted by Renetta Anderson, Fox Center Interdisciplinary Trainee, and New Jersey Partners and Policymaking Graduate. Regina's commentary on how to infuse conversations about equity, diversity, and inclusion into person-centered approaches within the everyday work of those who do direct work with people with disabilities and families is a wonderfully specific instruction on how to be available to learn about the people that a professional is serving. She instructs us not to leave the responsibility fully on the person that we are supporting to inform us on every aspect of their cultural norms, but rather take a more proactive approach and seek out information on your own, while also taking the time to check in with the person on how what we learned may or may not actually apply to them. So Regina, how, how do we infuse conversations about equity, diversity, and inclusion into person-centered approaches uh, within our everyday work? And so specifically, I'm thinking about those who might be listening and they spend their day um, you know, doing the day-to-day -day case management work or direct care worker, teacher, job coach. How do we infuse this conversation into their work? Well, I would say that it's really important first <laughs> to take on some responsibility, right? Don't put all the burden of learning about a new culture that you may be presented with with a new family that's on your caseload. Don't put all that burden on them to tell you about the history of, the, of their state, the history of their community. Go learn, go learn about them as much as you can. Then recognize that their experience is not necessarily um, you know, a mirror to what you just read, right? consider that there was some complexity and some diversity and some influences in their experience, and then start to ask some questions, pull the culture wheel out and start to ask some questions and start to engage. But the only way that you're going to be able to get to any of those things is if you create first, before you even engage on your person-centered uh, practice, you know, your checklists and all those things, you have to create a safe environment for someone. People know, and I will challenge many people to recognize that, especially individuals who um, are, you know, of the African-American community, the Asian community, the Latino community, I believe that we even have a stronger muscle of recognizing when somebody is not genuine. And so we will, as a survival of what we've endured in our surviving, we will put up a barrier that says, I'm going to just tell you just a little bit about me. And, and that's part of, of, you know, the intersectionalities of the experiences of oppression and racism that we've gone through so that we're careful to protect ourselves, our family, and the community that we represent. Um, so we have to come with humility. We have to come with genuine intent of really trying to support that person in front of us and then get to know that person, start asking questions and know that, if you want vulnerability from someone, you have to offer vulnerability to someone. It's, it's human nature. Now, I'm not saying that we cross barriers, cross lines related to our profession, but I can tell you what my favorite foods are and why that's my favorite food without crossing any barriers related to my profession and show you how I celebrate culture by modeling it and showing you some different dynamics of, of cultural characteristics, introducing that 
starts to create a safe place for someone else. The other thing I will say, if you uh, really want to be considerate and be at you know, your strongest form when you're, when you're uh, executing DEI and person-centered services is to be considerate about the cultural norms you enter into. So if you're entering into someone's fam to, uh, family's home and they offer you food, it's okay to, to take that food because first of all, there's many cultures who are giving you their last meal. Um, there's many communities who are offering their last meal to you. And it's very disrespectful for you to not take something, to not accept water, to not sit down if they're sitting on the floor, to not sit with them, to not remove your shoes when you walk into their home. Pay attention to what their cultural norms are and pay attention to how you can respect those and how you can enter it. Because a lot of the work that we do, now obviously we weren't doing it during COVID, but a lot of the work we do, we go into people's homes and also ask people if they feel comfortable in their home having these types of conversations. And um, for many communities, it's really important for us to live together. And we like to have, I grew up on a block where there, all of my aunts and uncles lived on the same block in four houses. And that includes my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And so we were all, I mean, there was no privacy. Like if I'm having a meeting, I want to be like, um, can we be at the library? Because everybody and their mom was coming to this meeting. So think about, you know, how people are, are presenting to you, you know, no, that's, I don't really want to have this conversation there or whatever, you know. Thanks for listening to this episode of BoxCast a podcast by the Box Center on Developmental Disabilities. A full transcript of this and every episode can be found at theboggscenter.podbean.com. We hope you've enjoyed listening to season one as much as we've enjoyed making it. BoxCast will be taking a break for the summer and we'll be back in October with new episodes. If you haven't yet, we hope you'll use this time to check out this past season and find your own highlights. Be sure to subscribe to BogsCast on your favorite streaming service, so you'll be among the first to know when we're back with season two. To learn more about the Bog Center, visit our website at rwjms.ruckers.edu slash bogcenter. And follow us on Facebook at the Bog Center on Developmental Disabilities.